Thanks, John. Well, brothers, let's turn together to uh, read from Isaiah chapter 1. I much prefer preaching from uh, a passage or uh, consecutive passages. Uh, I'm not doing that at this conference, uh, so I'm out of my comfort zone. I much prefer having the parameters set uh, by a specific passage rather than the whole Word of God. Uh, but this, this is a relevant passage. Uh, I, I may refer to it uh, at some point. Uh, there's a number of, any number of passages really that speak about uh, the danger of presenting to God our worship in a purely external way, in a formalistic way, without the heart. Uh, and this is, this is one of those passages. So let's read from verse 10 uh, to verse 20 of Isaiah 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So our topic today, the question this morning is, why must we guard the heart? We've thought about what the heart is. Uh, now we want to think about why we ought to guard it. And uh, perhaps um, just a quick book plug uh, for those that haven't read much of John Flavel, uh, A Saint Indeed. Uh, or the alternative title is The Great Work of the Christian Explained and Applied. 
John Flavel. It's found in volume five of his writings, about 100 pages there on Proverbs 4.23. It's also uh, in a different format that's been published by Christian Heritage for about a fiver, uh, Keeping the Heart, How to Maintain Your Love for God. A very helpful exposition and treatment of Proverbs 4.23. I said last night that these four addresses are one long sermon, really, on Proverbs 4.23. Well, uh, Flavel's book is an even longer sermon on Proverbs 4.23. And Flavel, in his book, he gives six reasons why this is the great work of the Christian life to guard the heart. And then at the end of the book, he gives 10 inducements to guard the heart, which really, as far as I can see, are not very different from reasons to guard the heart. But anyway, he gives, in good Puritan fashion, 16 different reasons of one sort or another as to why we should guard the heart. I think I'm incorporating one of them into what I want to say this morning. But in light of all that we thought about last night, about how the heart is fundamental in the human person. It's not really any surprise, is it, when we read in Proverbs 4.23 that we are to keep the heart, uh, to guard the heart with all vigilance. It is the most precious thing we have. All that we are is bound up in the heart. And so if we lose it, if it's captured, If it's damaged, then the consequences of that for us as men will be calamitous. It's a very emphatic command in Proverbs 4.23. Guard the heart with all vigilance. Uh, That's a kind of an interpretive translation, a bit of a (coughs) paraphrase. Literally, uh, it says, above all keeping, keep your heart. Above all your guarding, guard your heart. Guard your heart above everything else that you guard in your life. And of course, there are all kinds of things that we guard, aren't there? Jealously, carefully, with the utmost scrupulousness, we guard We guard our our family's safety, for example. That's something that we take uh, extremely seriously. We go to great lengths to make sure that uh, our our wives and our children are protected. Uh, We protect our homes and our possessions. We guard our money and our investments and our health and our rights and our reputation. And the list goes on and on. There are so many different things that we keep that we guard. How many times have you checked that you've locked your car as you've walked away from it, that it definitely is really locked? Or how many times have you checked that you've definitely got your phone with you or your wallet is in the pocket where you left it? We guard these things zealously and carefully because they're important. But God says, he's not saying that we shouldn't guard those things, but he's saying above all other guarding, Before anything else in your life that you guard, this is the thing that you must guard first and foremost. It's a command that comes repeatedly throughout the scriptures. So Jesus warns the disciples, not just once but numerous times, to watch 
and pray. It's really just another way of saying guard your heart. Paul warns the elders of the church at Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in Acts 20, 28. Guard your heart, in other words. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. But with the Ephesian elders and with Timothy, it's the self first, it's the heart first. Albert Martin says, first, our first and most basic responsibility in the ministry is to pay constant, close, and careful attention to the ongoing health and vigor of our own redeemed humanity. Just a, a Martinian way of saying, guard your heart. Close, constant, careful attention to the health and vigor of your own heart. This is a continual duty that's being emphasized here. We are to keep on guarding and watching our hearts. Perseverance is crucial. It's not enough that we, f that, that we throw a few good punches at the start of the fight as we guard our hearts. This is a lifelong work. And how many ministers are like that? I'm not necessarily thinking of, of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, although we do need to ask ourselves this, but how many men have gone into the ministry and they've thrown a few good punches at the start and they've been scrupulous and careful about guarding their hearts at the beginning, but then it's eased off gradually, imperceptibly, and they have finished poorly. This is not just something for men entering the ministry. This is not just for students for the ministry. This is not just for young men. This is for all of us. It is a lifelong work. We are to guard our hearts all our lives. Flavel says, if the heart must be kept because out of it are the issues of life, then as long as these issues of life flow out of it, we are obliged to keep it. So as long as the issues of life are still coming out of the heart, as long as you're alive, in other words, you have got to keep your heart to the very last moment of your life. Even as we lie on our deathbeds, we are to be guarding our hearts. Because even there, it's not as if the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to give up and let us be and give us a few moments of peace before the end. Sometimes the greatest challenge comes at the very end in weakness we need to guard our hearts continually it's an emphatic command for all these reasons it's emphatic too because of the imagery here it's military language guard your heart we had a good example of that a good illustration of that at the queen's funeral didn't we as she lay in state in St. Giles Cathedral, 
uh, th there were news reports of all the snipers, dozens of snipers on the roofs around the cathedral uh, and even inside the cathedral to, to keep guard over the coffin. And then the funeral itself, of course, was a massive operation. 10,000, was it, police officers? Uh, the largest policing operation ever conducted in the United Kingdom. Queen Elizabeth's coffin was probably the most closely guarded, carefully kept object in the world. And not just, of course, because there was this priceless crown orb and scepter uh, <laughs> sitting on top of it. Uh, it was carefully guarded. Uh, and we should ask ourselves, as we think about guarding our hearts, uh, the citadel of, of our being, do we bring the same commitment, the same seriousness of purpose to guarding our hearts, which in fact are far more valuable and precious than any crown, orb, or scepter? Do we give careful and close attention to guarding our hearts? Do, do we daily think about this? Is this something that is always on our radars? Or is it something that we only think about from time to time when we hear a talk at a conference about it or read an article uh, on a blog about it? Do we recognize the high priority that God himself sets upon this? I mean, in a sense, why must we guard the heart? Well, we don't need any other reason other than this, that the Lord tells us to do it and that he tells us to do it Above all else, this is the thing that the Lord himself says must be above all guarding. Do we know how to do it? It'll be interesting. I'd like us to talk a wee bit about this afterwards, but lots of reasons why we should guard our hearts. And I'm sure that you can all think of these reasons. They won't, they won't be new to you. But what might be helpful to talk about is why do we not? And perhaps we could share some of the things that prevent us, that stop us, that in our own experience have led us to neglect the keeping of our hearts. That might be a fruitful uh, thing to talk about. But maybe one reason is we're not really quite sure how to do it. We know that we have to do it, but what does that look like in practice? Do you have safety measures in place to help to guard your heart? Do we understand, do we get it, the seriousness of this, that there are life and death issues at stake here? Do, do we recognize the symptoms of spiritual heart disease, the early warning signs in ourselves first, as well as in our people? It's worth just uh, mentioning too that we're, we're commanded here to guard our heart and as we saw last night, that is the totality of our inner nature. Uh, our greatest problem is inside us. And that's helpful. Uh, I find that helpful to think about uh, from a ministry perspective. My greatest problem is not those people, whoever they may be, outside. It's not this place, this context. It's not my circumstances, it's not my marriage, it's not my family, it's not my health. It's inside me, it's my heart. That's what I have to guard. That's my greatest problem. The thoughts, the motives, the idols of the heart. 
So this is work that's vital for all Christians to do, but especially for us as pastors. Uh, that's why I thought it was particularly appropriate uh, to bring as a series of messages at a pastor's conference. All Christians are commanded in Proverbs 4.23 to guard their hearts. It's not just for pastors and office bearers, but we especially, we all the more need to guard our hearts, don't we? Because we are the special target of the devil. And there are extra temptations and extra pressures that come upon us because we are in the ministry of the gospel. There's a direct correlation, isn't there, between the health of pastors and the health of the churches. And there is a direct correlation between the health of the pastor's heart and his spiritual health. So as your heart goes, so goes your congregation. As, as McShane said, I mentioned last night, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. So I suppose in a sense we could just stop there and talk about that. But let me give uh, five uh, reasons, I think, as to why we should guard our hearts. First of all, we must guard our hearts because they are under attack. We should guard our hearts because they're under attack. Uh, that's implied rather than explicit uh, in Proverbs 4.23. Our hearts are under attack. Now obviously they're under attack from the outside, uh, from the world and from the devil. They're constantly attacking our hearts and trying to breach our defenses. But far more dangerously than that, our hearts are under attack from within. There is a fifth column inside our own hearts looking for every opportunity to betray us. The Bible calls it indwelling sin or the flesh, the enemy within. We saw last night that we're no longer under the dominion of sin. But that does not mean that we're not that does not mean that we're free of its presence and its influence and its power. It is still very powerful. We have a new heart, praise God. We have a new mind, we have new desires for the things of God, but that work of renovation in us is not yet finished, and we need to reckon with that. And deal with that. That's why we need to guard our hearts. Because our hearts are freed but flawed. 1 John 3 verse 2. What we will be has not yet appeared. And so our minds don't see as clearly as they one day will. Our minds have been renewed. Uh, we, we, we see Christ. We see him in a way that we never did before we were converted. Our eyes have been opened. Our minds have been enlightened. But 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, now I know in part. Uh, one day we will know fully, but that day has not yet come. The mind doesn't yet see as clearly as it will. And our desires, our affections can still be entangled, according to Galatians 2, 11 to 13. And our will can't fully do God's will yet. 
we were able to do God's will, but we're, we were not able to do God's will perfectly, not this side of glory. Our hearts are new hearts. They are living hearts. They're hearts of flesh, but they are still unsearchable. They are still deceitful. They're not deceitful above all things as they were before conversion, but they are still capable of a fair bit of deceit. And the flesh indwelling sin is a traitor living inside us and using our heart as its base of operations. Remember how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7. Sin living in me. Indwelling sin. Sin living in me. In other words, the flesh doesn't come and go. It's a permanent residence, resident inside us. Uh, even the devil left Jesus after the temptations for a season. Of course, he returned again and again to tempt him. But even the devil left Jesus uh, for a season. But indwelling sin doesn't come and go. The flesh, indwelling sin, this traitor within, is a relentless, constant presence. Wherever we go and whatever we're doing, the law of sin, Paul says, is right there with us in the heart. Whatever you're doing, the law of sin is right there with you. When you're preparing a sermon, when you're on your knees praying, when you're preaching a sermon in the pulpit, when you're preaching a sermon at a minister's conference about guarding the heart, the law of sin is right there in your heart. As you're administering the sacraments, as you're handing out the bread and the wine, as, as you're praying in public, whatever you're doing, wherever you go, you can't escape because you carry it with you. The law of sin living in us right there with us. And it never rests. It's constantly ready to tempt us. Romans 7, 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And the flesh, Scripture tells us, is very good at its treacherous work. Hebrews 2, 2 sorry, 12, 1. It easily entangles us. And it easily entangles us, amongst other things, because it is inside us. It's in our heart. And as we've seen, the heart is the ideal base for indwelling sin because it is unsearchable and deceitful. Uh, I was mentioning last night to a couple of men uh, a really excellent little book by Chris Lundgaard uh, that maybe you've all read uh, and have on your shelves, but it's, it's well worth getting. Just a little small paperback. It's called The Enemy Within, and it's really Chris Lundgaard's uh, reworking of John Owen on indwelling sin and the mortification of sin in believers. And he just does a masterful job, uh, just remarkable. Uh, when you read Owen and then you read Lundgaard, it is 
just incredible how he's able to take the essence of Owen and distill it down and modernize it and update it and refresh it with all kinds of illustrations. It's, it's such a brilliant, brilliant little book. Um, and anyway, Lungard says in, in, in one place, uh, talking about exactly this, the, the enemy within uh, indwelling sin in the heart. Uh, he says, imagine fighting an enemy who was always able to duck into a cave or a tunnel where you couldn't follow. He's able to hide out of reach and he stays there long enough to make you think that he's gone for good and then, out of the blue, he drops down on top of you. The heart is like that, he says, an unsearchable and deceitful fortress where indwelling sin lurks. I said last night that the heart is like that labyrinth in the uh, myth of uh, the Minotaur. But the labyrinth is now under new management. It's owned by the king. It's being remodeled, but it's not finished. Uh, it's maybe not even very advanced uh, in some hearts. And there are still many, many trap doors and hidden rooms and secret passageways where sin, the flesh, is able to hide. You can't ever be complacent when you have a flawed heart with indwelling sin in it. And maybe you've found this experience time without number. Um, lust, for example. You've battled it, and you've prayed about it, and you've confessed it, and you've wept over it, you've repented, you've made vows, and you're sure that it's beaten. You think that you've triumphed at last over it and that it's gone from your heart for good. And then one day, out of the blue, with hardly even any provocation, it suddenly is back with a vengeance as though you've never fought it in your life at all. And that's exactly what Lungard's saying, this enemy who's able to, 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 to go and hide and lurk in these secret trapdoors and passages, and you think that he's gone, and then there he is again. The flesh, indwelling sin, never declares a ceasefire. It never offers a peace treaty. The only way to deal with it is to keep on killing it. Some try to appease it, by giving in to its demands, trying to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's what we do, isn't it? Sometimes we think, well, okay, I'll just, if I give in a little bit, then the temptation will stop, the desire will go away, and that will be the end of it, and then I can get back on track again. But he says, sin doesn't quench the flesh any more than petrol quenches fire. Brothers, we need to guard our hearts constantly because they are under attack. We have this Judas within us. Remember how Judas was, after he had agreed to betray Jesus, he was constantly on the lookout for an opportune moment to hand Jesus over. That's what the flesh is doing in us. Every second of every day while we are in this body, it is looking for an opportune moment to hand us over. We can't relax our guard when we have a traitor like that within us. It's so easy, isn't it? I was thinking about this. It's so easy to downplay the danger of the flesh. 
The world and the devil, absolutely, we get that. Yes, they are clearly enemies out there. But, but the flesh, that's just me, isn't it? I, I know me. I can trust me, can't I? I'm not all that bad, am I? Scripture says, no, you are. Flesh is absolutely that bad and all the more dangerous because it's within you. You've maybe heard that uh, Pogo uh, cartoon quip, we have met the enemy and he is us. We are the enemy. We can't trust ourselves. Sometimes, uh, you know, especially now that I have teenage girls, you know, and I'm, we're putting certain safeguards in place for their own good, and they'll say, do you not trust me? And obviously sometimes you want to say, of course we trust you. That's, but, but there are certainly times when the answer to that is no. Well, we don't trust you because I don't trust myself. And you're foolish and you're naive if you think that you can trust yourself when this is what is living within us. The flesh, the Judas, the traitor in our hearts. So we must guard our hearts because they're under attack. Then secondly, we must guard our hearts because they are the source of our life. They are the source of our life. And of course, this is the key reason that Proverbs 4.23 gives, isn't it? Uh, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it are the issues of life. Uh, literally, for from it are the goings out of life. And the image here, uh, if the image of the first half of the verse is military, then the image here is of a spring and a river. And the heart is to the rest of your life as the spring is to the river. And if you don't guard the spring, then the river will be polluted and problems will just spread massively everywhere that the river goes. I remember reading uh, years ago uh, a story uh, about a town in a valley in Austria with uh, a beautiful river flowing through it. I can't remember now the name of the town or the name of the river. But the water was famous everywhere because it was so clear and clean and fresh and cold. It came from the mountain that was high up above the town and the people in the town, understandably, were very proud of their beautiful, sweet, clean clear water and one year the town council decided to try and cut back on spending and they discovered that a salary was being paid every month to a man up in the mountains with the title of the keeper of the springs his job was to keep the leaves out of the springs of water up in the mountains nobody knew anything about him uh, they didn't know when he had been taken onto the payroll, nobody ever saw him, they didn't understand what his work was, so they stopped paying him. Obviously this is an easy place where we can make savings. And nothing changed at first. Didn't seem to make any difference, no great loss, definitely a worthwhile saving. But then little by little the colour of the river changed to a muddy brown and began to stink and it didn't taste good any longer, and people started to get sick from drinking it. 
And eventually someone went up to investigate in the mountain and they found that the spring was all clogged up with leaves and mud and slime and all kinds of things. And so they reinstated the keeper of the springs. Very soon the river was back to its old self again, clean and clear and beautiful. And that's really what Proverbs 4.23 is saying, isn't it? That's why we need to guard our hearts. Because it's the source of everything. It's the control center, we thought about last night, of the whole person. And if you allow sin to clog up your heart, it's not going to be very long before the whole person begins to show symptoms. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, talks about uh, an experience that he had of this in, in his own life. Uh, he was at a, a, a Bible translation, he was working on the ESV translation uh, at Cambridge. It was a very intense couple of weeks of translation work with top flight scholars from all over the evangelical world and they were enjoying tremendous fellowship with one another and they were working non-stop and it was really, really stimulating and it was really uh, enriching and it was demanding and stretching and uh, they spent a lot of time together and, and getting tireder and tireder as the week went on and so he began to set his alarm clock just a little bit later and skipping over that time of devotion uh, first thing in the morning. And nothing didn't make any difference at the beginning. And he was thinking to himself, you know, I'm spending the whole day translating the Word of God and talking about the Word of God with these other uh, brothers. This is, you know, I, I think it's all right under these circumstances to, to, to skimp on my uh, private prayer. But then he noticed, and his wife, who was staying with him for the week, noticed as well different changes that started to take place as the week went on. And he wrote it down, and he made a note of it so that he would have it for the rest of his life. Results of not guarding my heart. Pride, talking a lot about myself, inwardly hoping people will praise me, a lack of love for friends, irritability, relationships with friends stalling, a general feeling of inward unease, finding it hard to focus on scripture and prayer, self-reliance, no peace. It's a very honest and telling illustration of Proverbs 4.23. The heart is the source of our life. And if we neglect heart religion, remember, heart religion is the main thing. The heart is the main thing in religion. Pastor Martin says the health and usefulness of our ministry will ordinarily be realized in direct proportion to the health and vigor of our whole redeemed humanity. Again, the health and vigor of our heart. What we are before God determines the character and usefulness of our ministries. So many times I feel like saying this, but if there was only one thing that you were going to take away and remember, uh, surely that is something we should write out and, and put beside our desks or better beside the, the, the chair that we have our devotions in and pray at. What we are before God determines the character 
and usefulness of our ministries. Or Stalker uh, puts it this way, power for work like ours, the ministry, is only to be acquired in secret. It is only the man who has large, varied and original, a, a large, varied and original life with God who can go on speaking about the things of God with fresh interest. But a thousand things happen to interfere with such a prayerful and meditative life. It's the source of our life. And Jesus warns us, doesn't he, in Mark 7, 21, that sin starts in the heart. It's the source of our life. It's the source of all of our sin, every sin that we commit. It starts in the heart. Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The heart is where these things start and that's why we've got to guard our hearts. It's too late, in a sense, trying to stem, to staunch the, the, the flow of sin and wickedness once it's broken out. We've got to, to, to nip it in the bud. We've got to guard our hearts. No one ever wakes up one morning and just decides, I'm going to commit adultery today. I think I'm going to leave my wife and children. I'm going to run off with, with another woman. Nobody just wakes up in the morning and decides that they're going to commit murder. It starts years before. It starts small. It starts in the heart. It begins with that tiny little seed of unconfessed sin, unrepented anger, that little tiny kernel of envy or hatred, those lustful fantasies that we indulge that are not bridled, that are not mortified. And eventually, years later, they burst out in the hideous, full-grown sin. And so we need to guard our hearts so that sin doesn't get a foothold. It's the source of life. Positively, Flavel says, when the heart is with God, and full of God, our words that come from the heart will be a blessing. There's a positive reason thinking about the heart as the source of life. Uh, it's not just because sin will come from the heart, but if we guard our hearts, then so much good and, and fruitfulness and blessing and encouragement and comfort <coughs> will come from our hearts. He goes on and says, what is the reason that the discourses and duties of many Christians are so shallow and unprofitable and that their communion both with God and with one another are like a dry stalk? He says it's because their hearts are neglected since vain speculations and fruitless controversies have gained so much and heart work has been neglected so much. Their conversation has become like other men's. I wonder, could that be said of you and me? So we need to guard our hearts because they're under attack. 
because they are the source of our life. And then thirdly, we must guard our hearts because God wants our hearts. We need to keep our hearts for the Lord because he wants your heart. We know, of course, that God is obviously not satisfied with obedience and worship that is merely outward. Uh, And we could quote many, many verses uh, to to make that point. Um, Isaiah 29, 13 is probably in your mind. The Lord said, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Or Psalm 51, 16. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You, would, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And of course, it's summed up beautifully, isn't it, in that verse in Proverbs 23, verse 6. My son, give me your heart. That's what the Lord is saying to us every day. My son, give me your heart. So, of course, the Lord is not satisfied with, with obedience and with worship that is, that is purely external and, and outward. But it, it's more than that, isn't it? Remember that the heart is the totality of the man's inner nature. It, our mind and our affections and our will and all that those three categories encompass that we thought about last night. It's all three together. It's not just one component. So when the Lord says, my son, give me your heart, that's what he's saying to you. He's saying, give me your mind. Give me your affections. Give me your will. Give me all that you are. Not just your behavior. Not just your words. Not just your mind, while your affections are set on something else. He wants it all. He wants our whole being. He's not just asking for your exegesis. He doesn't just want your sermons. He doesn't just want our visiting and our counseling and our door-to-door work and all the other things that we do in the ministry. He wants your heart above all. Before everything else. Isn't this one of the greatest practical dangers for us as RP ministers? We'll come back to this uh, probably in in the last talk. But our practical danger, I think, statistically speaking anyway, is not that we're going to deny the gospel or abandon the faith. I'm not saying that One of us couldn't do that. But I don't think that is our practical danger. But I do think that our practical danger is that we gradually become cold-hearted formalists. That we do all the right things outwardly. We preach accurate sermons. We pray biblically, theologically correct prayers. We visit We chair meetings, we do all that outward stuff, and yet our hearts are far from the Lord. 
the Pharisees traveled hundreds of miles over land and sea to make a single convert. And the Lord says it's, it's for nothing because you kept your heart for yourself. The Lord wants our hearts. And without our hearts, nothing else that we do is worth anything. You imagine being happy in a marriage where your wife is outwardly dutiful and faithful, but you know that she doesn't love you. In fact, you know that she loves someone else. Something else, someone else has her affections. Her heart is set on another man. And yet she does everything right. She does everything that you ask her to do. She never ever digs her heels in and says no. But her heart is not yours. And somebody might say, well, I mean, at least she cares for the children. And, and she looks after the home and she supports you and she cooks and cleans and she does everything that you could reasonably expect a, a, a good wife to do. Surely that counts for something. You would say it doesn't count for anything. If she doesn't love me, what, what, what good is, is any of that? It's cold comfort, isn't it, without the heart? So why would we think that God would be satisfied with anything less from us? He loves his people passionately and he wants us to love him in return. He wants us to give him our hearts to glorify him and enjoy him forever. He wants all of us, not just our outward service, not just one little bit or piece of our heart. He wants the whole thing. Justin Taylor puts it like this. He says, the goal of the Christian life is not external conformity or mindless action, but passionate love for God informed by the mind and embraced by the will. Or John Owen puts it like this. The great contest of heaven and earth is about the heart of the poor worm we call man. My son, give me your heart. The Lord wants our heart and not much else. Nothing pleases him without it. It's very strong language, isn't it? Putting it in those terms. The great contest of heaven and earth is your heart. You little worm of a man. He wants our heart and not much else. And nothing pleases him without it. So you can give him, you can, I mean, it's 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? You have a man who can understand all mysteries and, uh, and prophesy and do incredible miracles and give all that he possesses to the poor. He can even surrender his body to be burned in the flames. You would think that that would count for something. But Paul says, if you don't have love, love for the Lord and love for his people, then what do you have? You have nothing, not something, nothing at all. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, 
the totality of our being, our personhood, who we are and all that we have. And of course, the Lord does want to change our outward behavior. Sanctification is not less than that, but it is so much more than that, isn't it? He wants to continually transform our hearts. And the way to do that, the, the, the way to truly, lastingly change behavior, outward behavior, is to change the heart. Because the heart is the source of all of our life, to go back to the previous point. That's what we do in parenting, isn't it? That's what we do in, in preaching. That's what we do in our pastoral work. We go after the heart. We don't just go after behavior. We're not satisfied as ministers, or at least we shouldn't be satisfied, with merely outward conformity. We don't just lay duties on people. We don't just stand in the pulpit and tell them, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Come to the prayer meeting, give your tithes, do evangelism. We don't want people coming to church and doing these things just because we nag and cajole and beat them over the head with their duties. We want heart obedience, don't we, from our children and from our congregation. So why would we want anything different in ourselves? It's good to have safeguards that help us to obey. It's a good thing, it's a wise thing, sensible precaution to have safeguards that will keep us on the straight and narrow, that will help us to do the right thing. Uh, accountability software, for example, is a very useful tool. Covenant Eyes uh, is, is a brilliant tool to help men who are struggling with internet pornography or, or with any sin in, involving the internet to be accountable to someone. It's a brilliant way of reducing someone's opportunity to sin. But we've got to remember that that will not change their heart. It has its place, but it's, it's, it's treating the symptom. And we've got to get deeper and we've got to address the heart. Because you can have someone who has got covenant eyes on every device that they have access to, and yet they're still every bit as consumed by lust as before. It's just that they're not able to give in to that temptation to the same extent. It's good. It's good to have that restriction. But God is looking for more than that. He's looking for our hearts. He wants obedience from the heart, from the mind, and from the affections, as well as from the will. And so we need to go deeper, and we need to train the mind, and we need to train the affections to see the horrible evil and wickedness and damage that's done by pornography. And we need to show the beauty and the loveliness of the Lord Jesus, the beauty of holiness, so that they're captured by a better vision. Uh, the title of Tim Chester's excellent book on internet pornography. And what is very good about that book, if you've, if you've never used it or if you're looking for a good resource, is that it, it gets to the heart it addresses the underlying heart issues and not just the surface symptoms behind pornography. And actually, I've found that that's a, his little template. He talks about the false promises of pornography and how the gospel 
uh, replaces those and exposes those false promises of pornography. But actually that little list of, of, of how the gospel addresses pornography, you can apply that to any sin and not just to lust. It's a really, really helpful example of how to, to deal with the heart. It's not enough just to change behavior. It's not enough to get outward conformity and obedience. We want to get the heart. And again, as I mentioned last night, Ted Tripp's books, Shepherding a Child's Heart and Instructing a Child's Heart, are really helpful on this issue. He says, we are tempted to focus on the behavior that requires correction rather than the heart issues that are the source of bad behavior. So if you want to change the behavior, of course we want to change the behavior, but the way to do that, to really do it, truly do it, lastingly do it, is to get to the heart. If we just give bare commands, come to the prayer meeting, come to the evening service, you have to be there, come and help with this outreach event. Or if we try to manipulate people's behavior, I'm so disappointed that nobody came to that special event after all the work that I and the two other members of the committee put in. We can try and manipulate people's behavior. We can try to bribe or threaten or shame or uh, heap on guilt or make promises or negotiate or praise or reward. And all of these things are designed to change behavior, to get the behavior that we want. But these carrots and these sticks, Tripp says, it's all behaviorism. And it doesn't work because it doesn't get to the heart. And you might end up with a very outwardly obedient, faithful looking congregation. Outwardly doing everything that they're meant to be doing. The envy of every other minister in the synod. But you also could have a congregation of Pharisees who worship God with their lips while their hearts are far from him. And I wonder, is this the Lord's word to some of us at this conference? My son, give me your heart. We need to guard our hearts and keep our hearts for the Lord because that's what he asks for. Then just uh, finally, uh, two quick things, maybe even just one thing. How are we doing for time? Uh, number four, we must guard our hearts because God knows our hearts. We need to guard our hearts because God knows our hearts. It's folly not to guard our hearts when the Lord can see them. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We can only see the outside. We don't have access to the hearts of others. In fact, as we thought about last night, we can't even fully know our own hearts, never mind being able to see anybody else's hearts. We can only judge by what we see and hear. Our data is extremely limited. And that should make us very cautious, just by the way, shouldn't it, about presuming to read anyone else's heart. When you know how hard it is to read your own heart and your own motives, it should make us very, very, very slow uh, to make judgments about the motives of others. Unless, of course, they tell us, uh, or it's blindly obvious from, from what they're doing or saying. And since we can't know the motives and the hearts of others, then 
wouldn't it make sense to assume the best of others' motives rather than the worst? We don't know either way, so why not do what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to do and always hope and always believe and, and assume the best wherever we possibly can? We only see the outside. But God sees the heart. He sees every dark corner and crevice of the heart. Nothing is hidden from his all-seeing eyes. Jeremiah eleven twenty. Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. Luke sixteen fifteen. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Psalm 139, all the way through the psalm, the Lord knows us inside out. The New Testament coined uh, many new words, but one of the new words coined in the New Testament was cardiognostes. It's in Acts 1.24 and 15.8. The knower of hearts. God is the knower of hearts. We may fool other people, but we can't pull the wool over God's eyes. It's a terrifying thought to hypocrites. But what a powerful incentive that is to us to guard our hearts. The thought that the Lord knows it. He knows what you are in private, in secret, when no one else is watching. In, in, the, in the recesses of your heart where no one else can see. And, and again, well, we can talk about this, but... So much of our heart, it's, it's the totality of the inner nature. It's invisible, it's secret, it's hidden. We have this, this whole inner life that nobody else has access to and, and we don't really let anybody else, even the people, our wives, those that are closest to us in this life, they, they only get to see a fraction of the iceberg above the surface. We have this whole inner life that's hidden. And because so much of our heart is hidden from others, I think we could almost fool ourselves into thinking that it's hidden from the Lord as well. And yet neglecting our heart in ministry is so utterly self-defeating, isn't it? It's, it, it I mean, sin doesn't make sense, but, but it's so stupid, isn't it? The Lord knows our hearts. He sees our hearts. What do we think we're going to achieve by neglecting our hearts or by being hypocrites? Do we really, do we really, we certainly act as if we believe that the Lord only can see the outside rather than the heart. For ministers, our whole work, our whole life requires the Lord's blessing upon us, which requires us to guard our hearts. If a builder's heart is hypocritical, he can still build a straight wall that will do some good at the end of the day. But as ministers of the gospel, nothing that we do will be of any lasting value, will not be of any real value apart from the blessing of God. And we have no right to expect God's blessing if we're neglecting our hearts. The Lord sees our hearts. Pious heart is absolutely essential for ministry. If our hearts are not right, if we're not guarding our hearts, and I'm not saying that our hearts need to be perfect, not at all, 
But if we're not guarding our hearts, if we're neglecting our hearts, we might as well throw our sermons in the bin and go to the cinema rather than the prayer meeting. And then lastly, we must guard our hearts because it shows that we are sincere. We must guard our hearts because it shows that we're sincere. Maybe you're asking yourself, am I a hypocrite? Uh, I'm sure that we do ask ourselves that question regularly. That's a question that we should ask ourselves. Do you want to know if you're a hypocrite? Do you want to know if you're one of those that Jesus describes in Matthew 7, who will say on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not perform all these many mighty miracles in your name? And he tells us to depart. Are we going to be one of those that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, who having preached to others, himself is disqualified? Here's the answer. The time and the care that you give to guarding your heart is a really good index of whether you're a hypocrite or not. The time, the care that you give to guarding your heart. Because our hearts are the totality of our inner life. They are hidden. They are secret from everyone else. There is no cash value in guarding your heart other than this, that you are earnest and serious and sincere in wanting to please the Lord and give him your heart because he's the only one that sees it. And you can do a really good job of hiding the effects or disguising or minimizing the effects for years as a hypocrite. The only real reason to guard your heart, to give time and serious attention to this, is because you are the real deal when it comes to being a Christian. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes more severely than anyone else because of the great gulf between their hearts and their outward words and behavior. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If you don't want to be a Pharisee, then the more that you are guarding your heart, that's the key, that's, that's what makes the difference. Outwardly, they were great. Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. He wasn't condemning what they did outwardly. Tithing, brilliant. Praying, brilliant. But it was the heart that was the problem. So if you guard your heart, you can be fairly sure you're not a hypocrite. This is what Flavel says. He says, your care and diligence in keeping your heart will prove to be one of the best evidences of your sincerity. It's a good, I mean, even just the other Sabbath, two, last week, uh, one of our children, a uh, seven-year-old boy in the congregation, came and asked me, how can I be sure that I'm a Christian? Uh, this is a great, I wouldn't quote flavor, Adam, <laughs> but that is, a, that is a great answer to give. 
to someone. And that's a question we get all the time, isn't it? How do you know that you're not a hypocrite? Your care and diligence in keeping your heart will prove to be one of the best evidences of your sincerity. And then Flavel says this, he says, I, I do not know of any external act of religion which truly distinguishes the sound from the unsound professing Christian. He says, I, can, I can't think of any outward act of religion that you can use as a test to separate the hypocrite from the sincere Christian. It is, he says, astonishing how far hypocrites go in all of their external duties, how plausibly they can show the outward man hiding all their indecencies from the observation of the world, but they take no heed to their hearts. And that can be true of ministers. That can be true of reformed Presbyterian ministers. How plausibly we can show the outward man but take no heed to our hearts and we, we know that even reformed men who have been greatly used and admired throughout the world plausibly showing the outward man guard your heart brothers because if you don't you may be a hypocrite on the road to destruction from it come the issues of life possible for a minister of the RP church to talk and debate with perfect orthodoxy, with a clear understanding in his mind of the nature and the effects of faith and the troubles and the comforts of conscience and the sweetness of communion with God, Flavel says, but have never felt the reality of these things upon our own soul. And if you doubt it, just remember, those of you who are here, that A.N.D. Campbell stood here and spoke at this conference and gave some incredible, moving, uh, remarkable, memorable addresses, expounding the Reformed faith with clarity and passion. And yet, where was his heart that whole time when he was standing here? Do you want to be a faithful godly, useful, devoted Christian? Of course we do. Want to be a faithful, useful, healthy, thriving minister? Well then, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the many motivations that you give us in your word to godliness, that you don't just lay bare commandments upon us and tell us to do them. We thank you that you graciously, repeatedly explain and elaborate and, and give all kinds of incentives and reasons and inducements. And Lord, we do thank you for these few uh, inducements that we've thought about uh, just now for why we should guard our hearts. And if we were in any doubt before of the importance of it, of this duty, that it is the great duty and uh, first responsibility of the Christian, we pray that we would be convinced of it now. We pray that by your grace, the power of your Holy Spirit, 
you would enable us to guard our hearts with all vigilance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.